0: Speaking of Reliability, a podcast with good friends talking with you about reliability engineering topics. Welcome to Speaking of Reliability. This is Fred Shankelberg. And this is Chris
1: Jackson. And we were just talking about how technology can only go so far when it comes to reliability because whether we want to admit it or not, there's usually a human being involved and they're very hard to, uh, to engineer right.
0: <laughs> well, we've got, I, I'm just thinking, as, when you first brought this th- topic up and I understand, you know, technology in the concept of like an aircraft or a, a large complex rocket engine or something like that. Yeah, people can push the wrong button pretty easy. Uh, but a technology also includes a pencil. Or a hammer. And but even then, if you leave a hammer where it gets rusty, it'll just fail on you if you don't do the proper maintenance and take care of it. Or a pencil, if you use it as a pry bar for something, it's probably not going to go very far.
1: No, but sometimes people do use pencils for pry bars. Yep. Small scales, obviously. And yeah. And they will buy pencils that tend to be better at being pry bars than others. So. That's the market. <laughs> yeah,
0: but you well, there's there's a whole pile of different things that go on here, and we run into it all the time when you're working on the development of a project. Is well, who's going to use this and how and where? I right? mean, we got to know the environment and use conditions and all those other things. But but sometimes, um, you can't imagine all of those. And then on the top of it, I think part of the discussion we were having before we hit record was that some people just override all those systems and cause mayhem anyway.
1: Right, I mean, the first cell phones, the first mobile phones as big bricks, they were designed, at least initially, with the rich and powerful in mind. They're very expensive, they're very heavy, and uh, they were initially intended to be a boutique product, but the demographic which accepted them the earliest and the most were the tradespeople, the plumbers, the electricians, who all of a sudden could purchase what was an expensive phone but as opposed to having to go back to their office between jobs, they could go from job to job to job to job, mm-hmm. and so there's an example of the device being used in a way which is not as intended, but it's certainly not abuse.
0: No, no, it's not abuse, but it's also you know in a toolbox or on the seat of a truck versus right on in a limousine.
1: Yes, and um, but uh, the, the mobile phone companies who saw. What the market was saying, and design phones accordingly. know the ones that are st- were still around; those that uh, refused to adopt, they quickly went out of business, and a lot of them did go out of business. It's those that started realizing that mobile phones and cell phones were going to be products for the masses, and not just the elite—that's that's where they started to take off.
0: Yep. Well, there is. I mean, that's a whole th- thread or thread, though, of how products become more and more commonplace I, I remember the first cell phones were treated with kid gloves because if you dropped it on the table the wrong way if it bounced off the couch onto the floor um it was gonna break it'd be a thousand pieces mm-hmm. i i don't know how many times i had to duct tape my battery compartment back onto these things because <laughs> <laughs> it'd be a you know in an small plastic clip that hold the battery case together basically and and if you dropped it once or twice that one almost always broke at least for me and, and he
1: had the nokia 3210
0: yeah yeah you know the one <laughs> yep
1: so for those younger people out there this his phone the nokia 3210 which was virtually indestructible it could go through the wash a couple of times before it decided to stop working it was very robust
0: very robust and yeah. it
1: was the world's best-selling phone as a result
0: yeah, it. You didn't give it to a teenage girl because then it would get broken, as I learned the hard way with my teenage daughter. So <laughs> that
1: said, if there was any phone that could survive the abuse of a teenage girl, you'd suggest the thirty thirty two ten would have been the phone would that would have had the phone. best shot.
0: Yeah, unfortunately, I don't but think it had a browser capability or texting or anything. I, maybe it had texting. I don't. Know. I don't remember. It, no,
1: it definitely had texting, but yeah. um. But of course, then, then the market changed. so then came the desire to have smartphones, and Nokia wasn't able to as quickly adapt quickly adapt. and so what was their strength quickly became a weakness because now there are they're starting to get, get more and more robust smartphones in that they can be water resistant and not quite waterproof. but when smartphones first came out, you you, you you couldn't put your smartphone anywhere near water, but people were happy to pay that price because they had a smartphone yeah. to browse, download apps, and everything else. So yeah. that's why Nokia didn't didn't continue to maintain their space in the market.
0: Well, the same could be said of the. I mean, the same thing goes with cars. As cars have gotten more and more technology into them, and more and more screens and and smarts and electronics and all this other stuff that's in it if you're a bad driver, you're still going to overcome all of the automatic baking, braking systems and everything else that's in it. Um, but we also get so used to, I mean, what was the, it was the Tesla one. The guy was, it's a very early autonomous driving capability. And some guy was going down the highway in Florida and, and a white um, trailer truck pulled out and the car didn't see it. And it, and the guy wasn't paying attention, <laughs> it's not right, to his car, and it killed him. And it was kind of the oh, is this ever going to work? And all those kind of things. But it was one of those where inattention in to that technology overcame it. And it was you. It wasn't designed to be totally autonomous. <laughs> you were supposed to still have your hands on the wheels, kind of thing. Um, right,
1: and I. I must say I, I, I shudder whenever I see those ads, which essentially show a you know stressed out mom or a late dad driving a vehicle, and they're not paying attention to the road, and the mm-hmm. vehicle essentially saves them from crashing into you know grandma or wandering across the highway or whatever whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, It almost suggests that it's okay for your driving skills to be. Less than okay, sort of normalising a lack of inattentiveness, even though uh, from an engineering perspective those, uh, those characteristics are inherently good. But now it's sort of um, getting to the stage, I would suggest, where some of us might be influenced to be less diligent. Um, I, I can't – I'm aware of a story, I'm not sure how true it is, regarding the um, – um how many people died on building sites those big high rise building sites
0: mm-hmm.
1: and i don't think about the empire state where where workers would build that building with very little safety equipment they uh, didn't yep. have helmets they'd so walk around and of course now we have z- uh, lines and zip lines and safety lines and helmets and everything else but there hasn't been an appreciable Ball, uh, or as big a decrease in deaths and injuries as you would expect and suggestion sh- suggestion being that with all these additional safety features people now do more risky uh, behaviors so yeah, when you, you push it, it to safe, the edge yeah you push it to I the mean, edge
0: because you know you have a, a pretty good shot at being saved and and right. then sometimes it doesn't work and then there's
1: scenarios like what happened in
0: china recently with the east
1: china airline crash which are from uh, where a Boeing plane just impacted the ground. It literally flew straight into the ground. And the preliminary suggestions are that that was a um, deliberate act. I think the the terms they were using was that, that the aircraft did exactly what it was told to do, which is suggesting that someone was telling it to, fly straight into the ground. It doesn't matter how reliable that aircraft is. In fact, that aircraft was entirely reliable until it hit the ground. If there is a human involved,
0: all bets are off. Well, it's, I mean, there's. it's one of the hardest parts of the... I mean, but it, it's even... I mean, it's some of the failures and some of the scenarios where people get involved is is deliberate. They, they're just going to use it as a... a inappropriately or, or maliciously or all kinds of different reasons, you know? Um, but there's also scenarios where people just, like you said, is they, they trust the car to do what it's designed to do, even though that it, it is a complex system and it's not foolproof and, but they're going to push it all the way to the edge. Rock. Um, you know, it's one of the reasons I got out of rock climbing is I, I'm looking at my belt and it's got a single point failure a loop where you attach to the rope and the, and I, at the point I was, my harness was, I don't know, five or six years old. And that was kind of the expected lifetime of them. And I was like, do I really want to get another light? If I'm concerned about my equipment and I'm afraid to do what I've been doing on this equipment for a while, either I got to get a new, new, new gear, uh, or get out of it. And, and so I, um, ended up slowing down a lot of what I was doing uh with the capability, but it was at some point I had a much higher risk tolerance, but I also had a lot more faith in my equipment and As that eroded, then I pulled out of it and it's the same with the cars my wife's car the subaru um has an automatic braking thing built into it, and uh-huh. the only time I ever felt it go is I was pulling into my in-law's house and it was a little bit of a ramp up to their garage and we got, I don't know, we were four feet from the garage and the braking system stopped us. And I said, I, I need to go a little bit further in so I'm not blocking the sidewalk, you know? So I had to yep. trick the car to go, all right, it's okay. It's a, Diane was talking to it. It's okay. It's okay. We can go a couple more feet. And we crept forward real slow and it was okay. <laughs> like, but I'm not going to go test it on the freeway because right. if, it, if it doesn't work, I'm screwed. All right
1: going back to the climbing equipment back back in my military days we were, all our carabiners and everything else that we got our figure eights um mm-hmm. because as you know if you drop them they're done they uh you have to uh if you drop a metal carabiner or figure eight or anything similar on the ground well many of them at least they're made out of alloys that will sustain these tiny little micro cracks in the inside and that means it won't fail today but it's going to fail and so ha- you can't inspect them. Um, I yeah. suppose you could X-ray them, but the ability to do that is just,
0: is just not. There's no. feasible. You just you just, just you just get rid of that one and don't and don't put it anywhere somebody can pick it up and use it. You know, just, right? Just get rid of it.
1: So you, so we don't we never had like a a, um, a central pool of these mach- these devices. You got yours, and you had to own yours. So and that the only defense we had was equipment husbandry where you knew you were handling your own device your own your own equipment and if you dropped it then you'd be much more likely to report it
0: yeah yeah <laughs> um, it was a, it was the same we when i learned i was in a sport parachute club in the army and i never did the it sounded so boring being a paratrooper because you're tied to the airplane and you can't you know unless you're one of the halo type folks but i wasn't going there i was in the artillery and 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 we got to pack our own chutes, or were expected to pack our own chutes. We learned how to fall and land, but we, the next step was learn how to pack your own chutes. And yeah, you paid attention to it because as soon as yep. it doesn't open, you probably screwed something up in the packing. <laughs> That's not a good feeling.
1: No, it's, it's uh. I- and you know, I hate static line jumping. I just have to say that okay. no one, not so many I, people know that is, but <laughs> <laughs> I hated it.
0: It was awful. Yeah. But it's but the, the some of our products and the technology, I think back to I think the our that initial thought though is that we to some of us it's just magic that the stuff works and we take it for granted, you know, and rightfully so and it makes life easier or faster or more efficient or whatever. We do all these cool things. But it goes to, I like your story of the safety in building production type stuff. And it, the safety systems and guardrails and everything else, I don't know, how many times have you seen somebody in a, on a raised platform and has a guardrail and they're leaning way over it to change a light bulb, you know, they don't fall right now, but if that guardrail wasn't there, they wouldn't be leaning out like that, you know, um, so it's, I get that concept, but in the design of products, it's one of the hardest things to do is design for how people are going to treat and use your product five or 10 years from now, when they're very familiar with it, when they've learned to trust it and everything else. And it's wearing or aging or cracking or whatever that almost, I've rarely seen that included in the design process.
1: Well, and then you look at the Air France crash over the Atlantic ocean where um a technology change where you had joysticks next to the pilot and the co-pilot um fundamentally changed how two human beings could input commands into an aircraft um, that the, i suppose the, the traditional approach to cockpit design which most people are familiar with is where the pilot and the co-pilot share a yoke well they have their own yoke but they're they're, they're physically connected so that when you push your yoke forward the other one goes forward as well and so. If there was a discrepancy between be whoever's co-
0: strongest, pilot,
1: yeah, exactly. But there was there would be no doubt about what the plane was doing. Mm-hmm. Air, air plants, air Air France. On the other hand, those joysticks where the pilot and the co-pilot couldn't see what was going on, what the other one mm-hmm. was doing. One was pushing down, the other one was pulling back, and they had no idea, no idea until it was too late. Yep. Um, but that sort of design was. Fixing a problem that didn't exist. It was the next technology, next level of technology. It was a different way of, of in, inputting information into an aircraft. It was, you know, it, it involved deviating from the status quo, but it introduced this additional um, way the thing could fail, which clearly the industry didn't fully understand at the time.
0: So, are we saying that the people that use our products and systems and everything else is the weakest link?
1: I don't think so. I think we can say they can be, but the point is, is that I, I think we we talk about the vital few all the time, and you have to work out what the weakest points of your system are. Mm-hmm. We usually do that in a mechanical or a physical context, but there comes a point where you can make your thing as so reliable that any incremental improvement in the mechanical or physical device will have a negligible effect because by this stage, all the issues are being caused by human error, or human human mistakes. And so y- there's no point trying to improve the reliability of your system at that point in time. The next step you need to take to improve reliability is actually all about the user interface or the human machine interface or somehow um, working out why those human errors, which are part of life, are, cause- are causing problems.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, th- that's the next step.
0: Well, that's one that I've seen in, in medical devices, paid attention to much more closely. Um, mm-hmm where they know that there's nurses and technicians and and and, and surgeons or whatever and using their equipment and there's a certain level of training that goes with it and understanding but i remember one product i was using it it had a um a, it was a tethered device that did some medical procedure on people but it was only i think 3 or 4 feet long and the very first uh, time they had a, a a doctor using this in a clinical trial type thing or just a uh, just to see how they would use it. Um, he pulled a, this box, which was where all the magic was happening, that was ending up at the end of this stylus that he was using. Uh, pulled it right off the bench because it was too short, <laughs> <Eey>. <laughs> you know, and smashed it to pieces, kind of thing. And, well, back to the drawing board. And I said, well, why was the tether or the the cable so short? And it was a mixture of coolants and, I mean, it had all kinds of stuff in it, but the energy that was being transmitted down, it had a physical limitation of how far it could go before it was not effective anymore for whatever the treatment was. And I said, oh, okay. Well, you might want to make a smaller box. <laughs> that's, yep. That does the final bit closer, and all the bigger ones, you know, further away from the operating table. And, or do we got to do something different here because that yanking the cable to get to exactly where you want to be is the primary concern of physicians to apply the treatment appropriately, not whether your box can hang onto the table or not, or put wheels on it so it just comes closer uh, or but something. That's not human error. Yeah. But it was, um, they, they And they talked about it in in various medical devices is that that trial with the real people it's it's great when you have your own engineers and technicians do it because they know all that they have that whole picture in place, not just the patient interaction and um I remember one time it was a product that had uh it would dispense. Uh, prescription drugs and it was all locked down. And so the nurse would have to come up and, and type in a code and then what the prescription was and it would be computer linked. It was super fancy lock box basically. And uh-huh. the first thing they ran into is that instead of using the pad of their fingers to type in on the keypads, they used the pen or the end of a, a sharp object of some sort. And because they didn't want to, have to decontaminate their hands again. So they'd grab a pencil Draw. or a pen or whatever and shove, shove that into it. And and it just ripped through the membranes on top of the keypads um, such that it would uh, not be, cl- you couldn't clean it anymore. So it couldn't be in a stale room. So as soon as you put decontaminant or cleaning solutions on it, it would corrode the keyboards and all fall apart. And, okay. and I was like, okay, you didn't know this? <laughs> but it was a trade-off. to Can we make these interactions and controls uh, safe to be sterilized, uh, but also usable? And so they went, to, had to go to a completely different, much more expensive technology that could beat both of those problems. Because people right. that, I got to push the button, and there's all these other barriers for a variety of reasons why I can't. Well, I'm going to get out... The, you know, the end of the scalpel and poke through there so I can push that button because I need to get my job done.
1: Yeah, and uh, it's also another thing that springs to mind is that acceptance testing, the reliability demonstration testing that our militaries we used to be part of really enjoy where they say, oh, the MTBF needs to be X thousand kilometers or miles and we'll test until we demonstrate that uh, we've met that requirement Mm -hmm. and then no matter what happens those vehicles on weapon platforms or or uh or whatever it is those radios when they get used in the field by real soldiers all of a sudden they get uh, things change the uh, apparent reliability decreases because they're being used in a very different a very different way and um people are genuinely surprised about this but then you go you ask yourself well, why why, why do we spend so much time? In some t- cases, it takes years to do, this, to do this acceptance testing. How do we spend so much time and money in this acceptance testing where everyone knows that no matter how accurate you think you can you, you can uh, replicate operational settings, your soldiers are going to find ways to use that thing in a way that suits them mm-hmm. because
0: that's their job. Um, well, it's the same applies for customers of any product. It's, it? if you don't really understand how they're gonna use it, you're gonna miss the mark and they're gonna use it the way they think that should be used. And and whether it meets that requirement or not, they'll find out. And so it goes, just because we've always done acceptance tests, by you know, highly skilled technicians that only use the equipment in a particular way, that's falling, There's <laughs> no doubt about it. Yeah. Uh, but it goes back to that, when you design, and there's people involved, you really do need to pay attention to one, how they behave with your product and what they expect your product to do, but how will it evolve? How will, because it always does the way we treat cell phones initially was completely different than the way we treat them today. And And
1: if you don't want to adjust, then that's okay. So as um, W. Edwards Deming once said,
0: you don't need to adjust.
1: You don't need to change. Change is not necessary, but neither, neither is survival. That's right.
0: (laughs) you gotta gotta be adaptable well anyway i mean there's a bunch of different stories in there i think we got the point across is that you can you can't design out the human element of this thing but you can design to accommodate it as best you can and and even then you still got to pay attention um i don't know i'm thinking if if folks are listening to this you probably have a handful of other stories that go along with this or maybe spark some memories for you let us know we or if you got a question or what is, we didn't touch really on the design practices of how to accommodate this thing or how to adjust for it. Um, I think we set the stage that you, you have to, but we didn't yeah. talk about too much of designing for people. Um, but that might be a good question or two that could come in and give us a spark for a, a direction to go for those episodes, that might be a good thing to do. And you can do that over at com slash go slash S-O-R. And you can find a way to leave us a voice message or a written message. And you can uh, find Chris and I and the other hosts of the show on LinkedIn or on our about pages. So plenty of ways for you to get in touch. So I think I'm looking at my desk with pens and pencils and styluses and uh, recording equipment and computers and drives and everything else. I just hope my coffee cup is, is well taken care of so I can fill it up again.
1: (laughs) That's right. Well, the only reason coffee is going to spill on the ground is not because your coffee mug fails.
0: It will be because of human error. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) It'll work. It's, it's been designed pretty well, except for my part of it. (laughs) Right. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks for the idea for this one, Chris. And uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Always a pleasure, Fred. Thanks for listening to Speaking of Reliability. We invite you to join the conversation. If you have a question or a topic that you think we should discuss in a future show, please let us know. You can find a comment box below the episode show notes or just leave a note as part of a review on iTunes.